Hello, this is Daryl here, sending love as always. Thank you for tuning in. I just want to say, if you like this interview, you can check our website for companion workbooks, action guides, tools, checklists, templates, and show notes with links for everything mentioned on the call. Just visit bestbusinesscoach.ca. That's best, B-E-S-T, businesscoach.ca. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by Carl Wee, the Dynamic Vice President of Technical Services at Windham Hotels and Resorts. Born and educated in Singapore, Carl boasts an impressive Master's of Architecture degree from the National University of Singapore. His global journey spans from Europe to Australia with a notable six-year tenure in China. A seasoned professional in international real estate and hospitality, Carl's expertise lies in design, project management, and acquisition and divestment. At Wyndham, he's been instrumental in the development of over 350 properties across the Asia Pacific. A believer in people development, I've asked Carl to join us here today to share his story, plus discuss design, leadership, and global perspectives in work. So Carl, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? All right. Thank you. Thank you for the very detailed introduction, Daryl. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. I'm great, great. It's good today. Good, yeah, good. And we're honored to I'm have you. Yep. Honored to have you here. So let me ask, I always to start off, before you got into architecture and obviously doing your business internationally, something not mentioned in the bio, you said you intentionally worked with government for a while to understand the inner workings of it to better do your role. It was an intentional mm -hmm. career move. Before we get into those details, how did you even get started in this field? Is this, do your parents... Are your parents architects? Do they work in property development? Is this like a generational trade of sorts? Mm -hmm. Well, not exactly. My, my dad was a more like a salesperson. So he likes to talk and then he can talk. So he's more a salesperson. So he has been in sales for many years. And during a period of time, he was actually in the hospitality industry. Hmm. And hotels, I mean, as a, as a sales director, I suspect that has some bearing into what I'm doing right now, being in hospitality. Yeah, my mom has always been a homemaker and she's been the stricter one. My, my dad was the, the fun one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, from young, actually, I, I like to doodle. And then, yeah, I didn't really care too much for studies initially, but mom being the very strict person at home. So she told she, she actually threatened me. It was a very common threat at the point in time in my era that if you if kids don't study, you will end up being a construction worker in, in Singapore. So, well, so in Singapore, construction workers are mostly just general workers, not exactly like specialized craftsmen in like overseas where like UK mm. or US where you actually get paid quite a bit and sometimes even more than the professionals like architects. Yeah, if you are a good craftsman. But in Singapore, the general worker, so you can imagine, she was just trying to scare me with the tough life and out in the sun, scaring me into studying harder. That kind of worked. <laughs> but along the way, I did remember sometimes that I, I would chide my mom and say, oh yeah, maybe I, I don't want to study anymore. It's it's tough. There's so many exams and things like that. Yeah, but uh, I would rather go and become a construction worker. Mm. Uh, of course, that, that never uh, took off because uh, she wouldn't have any of that. Yeah, but anyway, my from a young age, I had a fascination with buildings and the built environment. Even when I was doodling, it was mainly all about their yeah, buildings and then the houses. Yeah. Fast forward 
many years down the road. I did decently well in, in school. So thank, thankfully, due to mom again. So right. completed my junior college and uh, pre-entry, uh, which is a pre-entry requirement before university. In fact, I didn't choose architecture at first. I got into engineering, mm. which happened to be one of the most popular or hottest courses during that point in time because Singapore was in a very rapid period of nation building, right. yeah, construction. So engineering was wow, really top of the courses. So anyway... Then there was a point in time when I had a hiatus because as with all Singaporean men, at the age of 18, after you finish junior college, right, you have to go and serve the army. Mm. We go into national service, a service for two or two, two and a half years. So I had to do two and a half years in there. In the Okay, anyway, national service is another story altogether. I, I do have very fond memories of that because you go in there as a teenager, but then you come out. It's for a maturing of from boys to, to men. Yep. 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 Anyway, the, on the last year, before I got out of national service, that was when I was trying to be a good student again. And I took out some of my previous textbooks on like physics and, and other mechanics and stuff like that. Uh, and to my horror, I didn't really enjoy that much of those formulae, the calculations. And so I thought, oh, wow, this is going to be tough if I'm going to take the engineering course, which is easily another four years. And even by engineering, I, I was already uh, bent on getting into civil engineering because mm. there was more about yeah, structure, buildings. I looked, I had to look around since I had cold feet about physics-related mm-hmm. courses. So perchance, I, I came upon an alternative course, which was architecture in the exact same local university, National University of Singapore, that I, I chose. So I thought, okay, Let's explore this option. But little did I know that it was really a lot more uh, art rather than science. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So even the entry requirements, wow, they had people going there for aptitude tests. So where they try to get you to visualize in 3D and see how well you can conceptualize in 3D and draw stuff. Then for those who come from an artistic or art background, they do already have uh, portfolios. Mm. So they, they actually bring and showcase their portfolios, which I had none. I was always a kind of science <laughs> student. Yeah. But uh, fortunately, I, I managed to clear the aptitude test. And there I was. I got enrolled into architecture. Yeah. But the initially, those like art history-related lectures, those, those were fine. Was, mm. I, I was very used to lectures and examinations as a science student. But right. wow, when it came to the long and blank uh, ideation periods, thinking about yeah, how to design stuff. And then furthermore, there, there was a lot of money, pocket money. And because at that time, I was none of us were working with all students, right? So right. you were using your own pocket money to go and buy a lot of model making materials because you had to make like physical models. Right. And then you had to print like large uh, format display boards. There was right. a lot of resources down there. I remember like counting pennies just to manage that. And then uh, culminating, all this culminated into the final critique or crit sessions, okay. uh, which was, uh, I was never prepared for that because even in the first session, it was self-esteem damaging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, so you put your work up there, your design, your drawings and your model up there and then for your tutors and other people to critique. Right, well, right. Yeah, that's right. So it's like you against the wall, you know, <laughs> against the panel. 
Right. Yeah. You have these visions of grandeur. I think a lot of business owners can empathize with that in the sense of they sit alone in their office or at their home and cackle about their brilliant business idea. And I had a guest that said this. I love that he said, the market authorizes your business, not you. Like you might want to go ahead with it, but ultimately at the end of the day, the market will approve or cancel your business, right? Not yeah. you. And I think yeah, that's, the, you right. to, yeah, you have to submit it to the court of public opinion. That's right. That's right. And then a lot of time, right, you have to understand where the nuance or, or, or the direction of the wind is blowing, mm -hmm. what people like, mm -hmm. and they go design according to the what they like, because that's what they will pay for. Yeah. So I, I think those critic sessions in the school was a my introduction to the business world, because it, you had to stand there and pitch your right. thing yeah, for people to buy in. So. Got it. Yeah, that's so, that good training. What do you feel were some of the biggest challenges that you faced in your career so far to date? And how did you overcome them? All right. Okay. I think challenges, uh, well, there are challenges everywhere. So there, there are many different types of challenges. I think to me, I, I actually value people a lot as an individual. Because at this point in my career, I, I do manage uh, a, a team of folks. Yeah. So I don't... I've gone beyond to just doing work on my own. So now I cannot manage the amount of or the volume of work personally just by myself. I have to really tap onto everybody and appreciate their contributions to mm -hmm. the entire wider goal. So managing people, I, I feel that it's part of a challenge, but I relish that really because I, I like talking to people, yeah, I like understanding people and making the team more cohesive uh, in whatever way I can. Yeah. And then, one of the biggest challenges course, you said is people. Yeah. So that's one. And people, right, other than your own teammates. In fact, in a key challenge in terms of people that you have to manage external stakeholders. So for example, I'm in the hospitality industry, the design construction part, right? So we have hotel owners uh, and external consultants. So we have to manage them, especially since the hotel owners are people who come up with the money. They are the ones building the hotels. So they tend to contribute a lot more ideas nowadays. People are a lot more well-traveled. Right. And some right. of the hotel owners, are, I'm telling you, just, they probably have stayed in more hotels and even more luxury hotels than I have designed myself. Yeah, so that's, right. that's where sometimes, yeah, unless you come from a really functional and um, logical perspective, uh, they will just say, oh, I, I saw this thing there. I like it. It's really more about the mood, the feel, and that, oh, I'm going to spend my money the way that I like spending it. There's a lot of conviction down there that you have to do. Got it. I, that makes a lot of sense. So how do you manage that? How do you overcome those challenges? Do you have any strategies that have worked well for you? Okay, so far, I think I always believe in keeping things simple. So whatever works. At the end of the day, I think every business owner, even hotel owners, they are interested in the business. Whatever that makes money, so if you're able to make your argument or argue your point across using very logical examples, for example, there are certain times when I find that the circulation, it's, it doesn't kind of make sense where you have service personnel crossing your path with the like hotel guests. So where the public realm and then the service routes are in, interlinked or sort of disrupted. So you have to convince the owners from their perspective, they are also hotel guests. Imagine yourself as a hotel guest. If you see your service personnel like sharing the same lift with you or crossing to your 
space? What would you feel? Does it affect your experience? Right. Would you pay? Yeah, what, what would your review be like for the hotel? So you, you have to convince them using really logical and, and just simple explanations that they can visualize themselves yeah. on the situations I, that yeah, they're in. I agree. I, I actually have an example. Yesterday, I had to run some errands and I stopped mm. into this little grocery store just on my way through to grab a bottle of uh, some green tea. And one of the staff was having a break. So there's the person at the front counter, but then one of the staff was having a break. They were laying on their belly on a piece of cardboard out like through the door from the back room. And I, it's not like I'm offended or anything, but there's mm. in the middle of the space. And especially mm. from a design perspective, like the purpose of the store is to sell product. Yeah. And it's just in the middle of their whole display is this person on their belly on their phone on a piece of cardboard, just having a break. And mm. that's because they don't have a proper break room type thing. I'm guessing, I'm guessing that's they were right. there yeah. because they didn't have it was too hot or it was, there's no chairs or they want to sit on a pallet for their break. So it's this kind of a thing. I think, I yeah. remember we talked about this in the pre-interview you'd spoken about how you spend a lot of time actually getting to understand and speak to the people in the facilities to figure out like their preferences, their complaints, their stuff. So it's a really holistic design for the owner, the staff. And then of course, then the paying customer, is that accurate? Yeah. Can you speak to that for a minute? All right. All right. Okay, sure. So I think that is an accurate description. So we did talk about a little bit about the owners earlier, but at the end of the day, uh, the service will be delivered by the staff. Mm -hmm. So the more efficient and the more comfortable your staff can do their work, the better service they will be able to give to the customers. And then the better your reviews would be, all right, from the guests. In this day and age, I think reviews are very critical and important because even though some maybe paid reviews or whatever but you still cannot discount the very fact that before anybody books a hotel nowadays they will go online search out the millions of reviews mm -hmm. from different platforms and more so you have so many booking platforms like TripAdvisor, you have booking.com yep. you have yeah whatever so yeah so it's all there and it's all public information and so in this day and age of information, you have to do your best so that you ensure the best possibility of success. So for just now back to the staff, right? So you, I mean, from time to time, we go visit the properties, we talk to them and see what they face in terms of challenges, whether it is um, the spaces are too small. Sometimes it, it happens. You know, they tell us oh, the storage is insufficient or you, you can't fit so much of the, like, the furniture or the equipment in there and they have to like spill over into the public areas mm -hmm. or even like uh, in, in open areas. So it's things like that that will allow us to improve as we go along. And now due to the very fact that we have many different types of hospitality products. So you have urban hotels. That's a different animal altogether from like uh, resort hotels. So in terms of your number, the amount of space, you have the ambience. Yeah, it varies from product to product. So understanding every single product will allow us to give more efficient service conditions for the staff and also deliver service quality to the guests. Got it. I love that. Yeah. And I, you talked about reviews. They really are critically important. I think this is a, another thing that's important to mention as well. Like obviously mm. <clears throat> you can't, it's really hard to beat wow experiences from the consumer. And a lot of companies do. In fact, some people may or may not be aware. There's actually an industry called reputation management. And I think this is relevant. Yeah. Because we've gone through a couple of years, <clears throat> we talked a little bit about this and I won't go too deep yeah. before the interview, but 
Reputation management is an actual industry. There was a book written called The Google Bomb, and it was about mm. the early days of Google, how some disgruntled employees, sorry, disgruntled customers were trying to take advantage of a business owner and basically tried to rake them over the coals and destroy them online with reviews. There's also something that used to be called the Oprah effect. So Oprah Winfrey, for those that don't know, had an immensely popular show. And anytime mm. she mentioned or featured some uh, company or product or service on her show, there, like army of people would go there and, and try to try to know they would army of people would go there and want to check it out. So <laughs> the Oprah effect was that they actually discovered that she had destroyed hundreds of businesses by just simple things like, Hey, today on the way I stopped at my favorite bakery and I got this croissant. Oh, I love it so much. It's so great. Just a little mm-hmm. comment in her show because they, she actually ended up having to develop a team that would audit businesses before they could be mentioned in any way, shape or form. Because that little comment that she would make about, oh, I love this croissant. I'm just making this up. I love this mm-hmm. croissant from this little bakery. It's it's like a mom and pop shop. I love it so much. There would be an army of 15 to 50,000 people that would show up on their doorstep. And the people, yeah. the general public, they don't care. They don't care that you got 15,000 orders online and the lineup was three blocks down the street. They don't care if that yeah. happened. And you're usually getting 100 to three 400 orders a day. And they're mm-hmm. just going to bombard you with negative reviews. I had to wait too long. It wasn't fully yeah. cooked and both all this sort of stuff piles up. So this go, going back to the Google bomb was basically some unhappy customers uh, wanted to take advantage of business owner. Business owner didn't feel they did anything wrong. And mm. long story short, it led to a legal case that was had huge ramifications. This all birthed an injury called reputation management. We know with the internet, we have digital tattoos. So companies mm. can pay to spin bu- bad publicity and even bury it by paying for articles and nice magazines and for news stations to run stories. And this is a really important thing because right now, I think a lot of people know after the last few years, there's been a lot of talk about information, disinformation, this sort of thing. This is all feeds into that where companies can pay to do that, but it is incredibly, it is expensive. It's cost prohibitive. Mm -hmm. Um, But there also are major, I guess tech giants might be major media giants that own 80-20. And if you can send them some money, they can make anything bad about you disappear and go away. But that said, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, if you're in business for the long term, and if you're not one of these parasitic, no, I'm not saying some are, but there Mm. exist parasitic entities. If you're not one of them and you want to be a business for long term, you can only, the best way to do business is with love, to love on your staff, to love on the end user, to love on the client. Even if you don't have an ethical bone in your body, long term. You want to be in business 20 years, 30 years, generationally. You need to love on your vendors, love on everyone that you can and think long-term. So I thought that was a really good point that you made. And I just wanted to talk about that. Some people try to get around it. And I think the better answer is to lean in to bad reviews, find out why you're getting bad reviews and Mm -hmm. fix the problem at its core versus try to play some shell game of hide the bad reviews all these companies. And in some ways, I think the whole reputation management industry in some ways has emerged, which is in some ways a nefarious industry in itself, because yeah. it's, it's hiding the truth from getting out there. So it started off as a benign thing. Now, can you speak a little bit into, we talked about designing for the customers, designing for the owners, investors, designing for the staff, trying mm-hmm. to find a combination between efficiency, comfort, and obviously utility. And at the end of the day, what the people paying want. Can you speak to, because 350 properties is, it's a couple. (laughs) There are a lot of (laughs) regulatory, and these are also in different 
countries as well. Can you speak a little bit to working with regulators and in different government districts? Is obviously people don't know what they don't know. And mm-hmm. I'm sure you already know how one little thing we, I talked about that Aaron I had to run, there was a typo on a birth certificate. And even though we had seven different pieces of ID, we had to go get that amended mm. because the, the, mm. whatever the printer, you couldn't tell if it was an L or an I, I don't even know what. So little things can cause massive delays. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. We, yeah. All right. <clears throat> I think across our region, because I covered the Asia Pacific region, ex- only excluding India, but including China. Essentially, that's like almost 20, 22 countries, maybe <laughs> all in all. Yeah. So we have properties all over that the challenge is always with the local authorities. But having said that, we do hold a lot of accountability in terms of the critical things or the simpler yet critical things like fire life safety. Mm. All right. So that is our utmost priority at the top of our list. So as long as the property is able to produce uh, a valid fire certificate, all right, that's one of the key criteria that we will be satisfying ourselves with, that at least that is legit in, in terms of fire life safety. And then other things like the or the local handicap or, or let's say the, the, the barrier-free access requirements, so this is another factor that we have to ensure because as an international brand, we have to ensure that all sorts, all types of guests are able to access and enjoy our hotels. Mm. Yeah. So this, I think these two from the, the more critical ones, the, the rest in terms of functionality and everything, we will work on a day-to-day basis with the owner's design consultants, our operations team to make them all work together. So we keep it simpler. Uh, otherwise, if you have to deal with the authorities on um, like day-to-day basis or direct basis, it, it gets a lot more complicated. We, we try to leave the intricacies or the details down to the local teams who are building the hotels. We, we trust that they are professional enough to get all the required certificates and things like that. But for us, I think fire life safety, that's on the top. Do you guys have to make sure that fire life safety, the buildings won't crumble? If there's a fire, there's multiple exits, that sort of thing, that there's water systems in place. And then what, is there any other, any other tips or advice? What would you recommend to someone who's maybe starting out or struggling? You mean started out or struggling where? Trying to do international, trying to do multiple projects in multiple countries at once. Uh, Okay. All right. I think the, uh, as a start, if let's say you, uh, this person is new to the, the scope of work, then it's best to spend some time understanding each particular market, what they focus on or what they particularly interested in. The, at the end of the day, we have to remember that this is still a business. Whatever you design, you build, it has to make money. So, so it, it, cultural differences are, are pretty important. For example, I'll read some examples. In terms of things like F&B, there are, even within China itself, although it's a singular country, but because the fact that there are so many cities and the types of cuisine in terms of food, right? So it varies from city to city. In the Western areas, in Western cities, they have what they call the hot pot, which mm-hmm. is very spicy. Uh, they call it mala hot pot. So yeah. <laughs> and, and that is a kind of a staple that has to be there. In fact, if you were to introduce some like Cantonese food or something, they, there will be a lesser following. So 
it, so you have to first of all understand the market, what they need. So you design accordingly. So the restaurant has to serve a certain type of cuisine to cater for the crowd. Yeah. And so then areas how, maybe hmm? how do you validate? Sorry, sorry for interrupting. Obviously, sure. when you're developing property decisions like to build, there's a lot of cost and to make a change in the middle of something, yeah. you have to remove or you have to tear down and repair, remove. How do you know it's going to make money before you build? All right. So in the typical instance, you do a pre-construction kind of survey where you go and study the market and you see what has already been working there. All right. That's in an ideal situation, but that also is based on the premise that there are already precedents in the market. If let's say you're the first mover into a market, then you have to make your best guess. All right. And also, it's best to do a certain survey. You can, you, there are all sorts of surveys that you can do. You can gather from your existing guests. Let's say, oh, if you were to visit this city, what would you like to see mm -hmm. there, do there, eat there? And yeah, you, you can collect information pretty easily nowadays from all over. Of course, right. we, we have to trust that the information is legit. It comes from verifiable sources and right. it's not just some sort of hot wash. Right. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, fair enough. So survey. Now, do you trust the survey 100%? Because I remember Ford saying if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. <laughs> of course. There, there will always be certain people who would uh, ask for the sky, ask for the impossible. But at the end of the day, uh, I think being a large enough organization and being logical thinking individuals, we take the survey, we will make an assessment as to what are the ones that make sense and makes business sense. And then we moderate accordingly. As with, as with any other survey, we, we know in this day and age not to trust everything completely, like 100%. Right. That's, yeah, and that's what I'm wondering. Because, again, when you're developing your projects, it's just it's incredibly expensive. And the wrong decision could be a huge investment. <clears throat> and then what do you do with a building that nobody wants to visit? That's a big problem. Can you speak to that a bit? Is there an attraction factor in the sense of, is there some sort of redundancy you try to build in? where you build an attraction factor into the properties themselves in case this, and I'm just making the spitballing this, making this, is that something that is considered? Yeah. Mm. Uh, I, th I think of course, it definitely because for many of the properties, let's say if they already have something existing in the vicinity, let's say in the city itself, like people go to cities with Disneyland or like right. amusement parks to visit the amusement parks. So your hotel just becomes mainly an, uh, a form of accommodation as a means to get to the end where they go to the amusement park. Right. So you have to be very aware as to your location. I think as with any real estate, hotels are a similar type of real estate. So you have to understand the location. It's very critical. So to your point, if unfortunately there are no particular attractions in the vicinity or any other reasons or, or cultural interests for people to visit or guests to visit, then uh, it really begs the question of how you create value within the property. So you can do this via many different avenues. For example, things like F&B, you can create a signature F&B, you can bring in like Michelin chefs that yeah, will just prop the property up immediately as an uh, F&B venue. So people go there as a, like a culinary destination just for the restaurant and stay in your hotel at the same time. Other than that, you can also develop things like family-friendly facilities. Develop. There are nowadays some hotels where you have large 
kids playgrounds indoor playgrounds where that spans like two three floors and then there are like vertical playgrounds as well so they climb up and down and uh, long steep slides so uh, by developing such things right you do attract certain types of crowd that you might might be your target segment in terms of your market like fam families with kids so they'll go there yeah so uh, i think there are various uh, devices that you can actually use now, how fast do those trends typically change? So right, what I mean okay. is, because obviously when you're building, sorry if I, I cut you off, but yeah, when you're building these and you're considering making it a culinary destination or a family-friendly destination, the buildings will last hopefully 30, 50, 100 years. Yeah. The demand, what about predicting that, anticipating that demand? Can you speak to that a little bit? How fast do some of these ch trends change? Are you Would you build a facility around Pokemon Go? And the fact that there's a hot spot for Pokemon Go and a park, is that an attraction that you would build something? Or is that maybe potentially too short of a... Can you speak to that a little bit? I think you get the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think I understand where you're coming from. I think... So for that, at the end of the day, trends do change. All right. Oh, as much as we wish that they will last forever. So we built in some flexibility yeah, to safeguard ourselves. We hatch against the risk by offering things like contracts. So for example, let's say you bring in a third party operator, like your Michelin kind of restaurant, you might not be operating yourself, you might bring in some third party. If that's the case, then you sign a limited contract with them, such that by a certain time, if the concept doesn't work anymore, it doesn't draw in as much crowd, you have the flexibility to pivot and switch to something else. Mm. And quickly enough, once the contract ends, yeah, so from a business perspective, you can do, build in things like that. And to your point, let's say Pokemon Go, if that is the current trend, you can, for example, certain, some of our hotels, we do have like kids' rooms, rooms with kids' rooms. Yeah, so they, they have like bed sheets or even like uh, little tents that uh, right. excite the little kids uh, to stay in, in them while staying in the hotel rooms. So... Things can be designed based on such popular trends like Pokemon Go or right. whatever. So you can make it a theme, right? Yeah, that's right. So you make it into a theme, which can be easily uh, changed uh, from time to time and updated based on your current team. But then it sounds like the market research is a critically important part of this. Because again, if yes. you're trying to make a family-friendly facility, but the birth rate is declining, you know, where... I, which is happening in a lot of countries, you have to be very particular mm. about where you build this facility if you're hoping to make money over 20, 50, 100 mm. years, right? And I think that, because right. all of a sudden your family-friendly thing might have to become a pet-friendly thing because everyone's got little dogs, right? Like I think yeah. I, that's, there's a mall nearby and I think they turned a playground into a pet park because I think where I am in the Philippines, there's lots of kids, they still have a positive birth rate, but one place mm. in particular, I think they had two kid playgrounds. I think they turned one into a pet playground and they do a lot of mm -hmm. pet focused events so this is an idea of maybe a, a, a trend bandwagon versus a long-term trend and it sounds like you you basically try to build for both yeah that's right so you have to build in some flexibility so that you can pivot according to the market demand that's right i think any business will have to do that yeah oh of course 100 yeah. percent. okay of course there's other things like in canada niagara falls in canada the rocky mountains those mm -hmm. things mount everest those things aren't necessarily going away anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. So that's where you've got, but like, I think you mentioned amongst, I, I say this a lot for a lot of people, some people want to be the only option 
and the, the pioneers get the arrows, the settlers get the land. I say, you don't necessarily want to be the only option. You want to be lined up at a busy food court and be the mm -hmm. best of the bunch. And so this is where you maybe have a long-term trend location that you're at. And then are, you know, from that, you've now adapted to the micro trend to make yours more appealing, right? Yeah. For, for that, that date and time. I think that's fantastic. Any considerations in designing for a flexible facility? I, I don't want to in any way be derogatory, but some people say most rooms are just four walls, a ceiling, and a floor. How, <laughs> can you talk about some differences, some nuance? Like what, how do you design intelligently? We already talked about the layout of things, mm -hmm. in terms of staff and customer. You speak to some of the other things maybe people don't consider in design that are critically yeah. important. Okay, so I think in this era where we've just survived, to be honest, it was a game changer. It affected hospitality very greatly. And then we saw a lot of work from home. Everybody was working from home. And so now with a laptop, with with a terminal and like a computer or something, you can work from almost anywhere yep. that you like. And I think that has been a trend that has been picked up quite common across the hospitality industry. We designed for a lot of a lot more flexible and open spaces. Okay, so I, I think I start with the public areas. So luxury hotels, the luxury hotels, they have a huge expense of space. Yeah, right. th that's not an issue to them. But for example, your limited service hotels, where space is uh, at a premium and investment cost is not that kind of right. expensive right. or extensive. What happens is for that space, that whatever space you put in, it has to function uh, or be maximized all day long. So it may be in the morning, it might be a breakfast lounge. And then thereafter, because you have a lot of business travelers who definitely need breakfast. I mean, when you book a hotel, typically people expect breakfast, right? Before right. before leaving for the day. So you serve the breakfast. And then thereafter, now you will also find that hotel restaurants, a lot of them, especially in the mid-scale or limited service one, it doesn't bring in a lot of F&B business because guests of that, category would think that spending money eating at a hotel, it's not as economical or doesn't make that much uh, sense Thanks. as compared to eating as a social restaurant out there where there's probably better food, like local food or even international cuisine that you can find. So that F&B would become a problem. It, it will become, it will drag down if it's a dead space throughout the like lunch and dinner. So you can design for it to be flexibly converted into an event space the whole mm. meeting so that you rev you generate even more revenue in the day during the day then at night you if with some creative design you can turn it into a bar mm. yeah so when guests come back from let's say all their meetings and everything so just before they go to bed now they just pass by this area again they say oh okay oh there's a place for a drink to just wind down before <clears> they go back to the room so yeah, things like that allows the hotel uh, or the hotel owner themselves because yeah. they, they have invested this amount of money in that space to use the space uh, yeah, nonstop for the whole, at least the working hours of all the guests. I love that. I love that. Yeah, Carl, yeah, this so, has been a good... Oh, sorry. Did you want to... Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, well, uh, I was going to say that also in terms of the guest rooms, there's, a, there's been a shift uh, because you know that many of the traditional hotel rooms, you come with a writing desk. More often nowadays, you will find that it's shifted to a like a mid-level desk at the sofa. Ah. So that allows you to dine and even work there in a more ah. relaxed kind of manner, which is, yeah, remnants from the work from home 
kind right. of concept. Yeah. During COVID. Yeah, that's a good, this has been such a good value packed interview. I've got a couple pages of notes. I do want to be respectful of your time. Carl, is there anything I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? I think we've covered a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's right. If you have anything else to ask, yeah, please feel free. Yeah. How, how do people reach out if they want to communicate with you, if they want to get in touch, if they want to continue the conversation? All right. Now they, they can always email me. Okay. Yeah. What's your, you want to give your email? Do you want? Yeah, sure. Sure. All right. It's, uh, is that carlwee at gmail.com? It's C-A-R-L-W-E at gmail.com. Perfect. So you can reach out to him, C-A-R-L-W-E at gmail.com. That's carlwee at gmail.com. You can also find him on LinkedIn. Give a search. We've got the right guy. He's Vice President Technical Services at Windham Hotels and Resorts out of Singapore. Carl, thank you so much for coming and sharing with my audience and I, sharing your insights, your experience, telling your stories. I know you've got your own direct reports, your own family, your own projects to take and to manage. So thank you for coming and making some time to share with us. All right. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Daryl.